Amen. Uh, well, I was saying when I came in, I'm going to try to get through this tonight. I think I'm getting whatever Courtney has. My throat's been killing me all afternoon. But we'll, uh, we'll try to get through this. We're finally coming tonight to the end of John chapter 1. Um, we've seen Christ as the Word becoming flesh, exhibiting the majesty of His deity. We saw Him last week as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And this week we're going to be able to see Him start assembling His team of ministry his uh, 12 disciples as we, we know them. And we'll see him setting the example for us that he actually gave us as a command in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's exactly what we're going to see here at the end of John 1. We see Jesus making the first disciples for his ministry, and we will see Christ choosing ordinary people for an extraordinary purpose, because that's what God does. He takes common people. He doesn't have to have the most famous. He doesn't have to have the best. He often uses the unexpected to do his will and do his purpose. And the title of tonight's message is, The Savior is Calling. The Savior is Calling. So that's, let's look at that together tonight as we See, the first five disciples called, we're starting in verse 35 of chapter 1, and we'll read all the way through the end of the chapter. It says this, The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon's, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought, to, he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. And you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and you will see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite, indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, saying, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God descending on the Son of Man. We see two different sections here tonight on two different days. And notice that this uh, section of the first chapter begins with, and the next day. So if you've been keeping up with the first 34 verses, this means this is the third day that John is writing about. He's writing about the third day of this scene. It says that the Baptist, John the Baptist, was standing there with two of his disciples. Now, we do not know how many disciples John had at this point. We can assume it was quite a few because, as we saw last week, the numbers were obviously large enough that he had started 
getting some attention from the Pharisees. The Pharisees wanted to know who he was, why he was doing what he was doing, better yet, what he was preaching, and on what authority he was doing so. And in verse 36, it says, John the Baptist was looking at Jesus as he walked by. But this wasn't just a, a glance. It wasn't like me looking at Nick right now or me looking at Debbie. It says, Jesus was intently gazing upon Jesus. He was looking at him with fervent intent. That's what the Greek means. And remember, we talked about uh, John uh, making the exaltation of Christ as uh, the first two sections of this chapter. And we see John the Baptist standing here with that intent gaze, saying again for the second day in a row, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, like I said, he had already proclaimed this the day before. So this is the second day. He's driving the point home. And when he says, behold, that's not just saying, hey, look over there, there's the Lamb of God. No, he's saying, look, pay attention. This is important. He's telling the people following him, this is the most important thing I can say to you. And who I'm about to point out to you is the most important person that you can know. It's a startling interjection. He's emphatically saying, look, this one's the Christ. This is the one who was prophesied. This is the one who was written about. And this is the one who you need to follow. And sometimes I wonder why we don't proclaim Christ like that. You know, we, we often timidly speak the name of Christ. We say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. Or I believe in Jesus. Or I go to Bethlehem Church. Or, or what have you. But we should boldly proclaim Him. We should shout it from the rooftops. Look! Here is Jesus Christ. Jesus has come to the world. Jesus has come to save. You need to follow him. You know, there's this cute saying that goes something like this. It says, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And while this is a cute saying, and I used to use it myself, as I've studied and thought about it, it is horribly and deadly wrong. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Except here's the problem. You can't proclaim the gospel without words. Just because people see you doesn't mean they know who Christ is. Doesn't mean they know what he did for us. You cannot proclaim the gospel without words. I understand the point the phrase is trying to make, but it's theologically dangerous. And the time is too short. We can't wait to be asked why we're different. No, we need to proclaim why we're different. We need to speak why we're different. We need to let people know that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 4.2 that we are to preach the word. And to preach means to make a public, a public announcement, to proclaim the news. And not just to proclaim the news, but to urge compliance with that news, to urge acceptance of that news. It's not just saying, let them see you and wonder what's different. It's active. It's not passive. He even drives that point further home in, in the book of Romans chapter 10 and verse 14. It says, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him if they have never heard of Him? And how will they, never, how will they ever hear of Him without someone preaching? John the Baptist, he was boldly proclaiming the Lamb of God as he prepared the way for the Lord in church. That's what we need to do too. We need to boldly proclaim him. We can't just be passive about it. And now, as John boldly makes this proclamation for the second day in a row, and two disciples were standing there with him, they heard this, and they followed Jesus. Now, who are these two disciples? The first one we know for sure was Andrew, because it tells us that in verse 40. But the general agreement is that the second disciple 
was John who was writing this. And there are a few reasons for this. First, the disciple in this account is not named. And as I talked about a few weeks ago, John never mentions his own name in this gospel. He either refers himself as a disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. But it's also to note that there is a detailed account being given here. We see several times it says the next day. And then in verse 39 it says in the 10th hour. John is writing this with absolute precision. So it's reasonable because of that precision to believe that he was actually there for these events. He was seeing them occur and that he was able to therefore recall in great detail those moments when he first met the Savior. So while we cannot say with 100% certainty that this was John as the second disciple, we can be fairly confident that it was. But the disciples heard John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God for the second day in a row. And they followed Jesus after hearing this. And now we know that these were not the only disciples that John had. And we'll see that later as we get into the book of John. But these two left and followed Christ, which brings us to verse 38. It says, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? What are you seeking? What are you seeking? That's the question that Jesus asked them. The word seeking here in the Greek is zetite. It doesn't mean just seek as in, in searching for. It means they are seeking for something that they desire. They have a longing for the thing that they are seeking. And what is this thing that they are longing for? Well, the answer is clear from what John the Baptist had proclaimed. They were seeking this Lamb of God. They wanted to know who this Messiah was. They wanted to know Christ. Now, Christ is the word for Messiah in Greek. So you have Messiah in Hebrew. In Greek, it's Christ or Christos, but it means Messiah. So when we say Christ, what we are actually saying is Messiah. We're saying Jesus, Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. But it's interesting to note here what their response was to Jesus because they didn't actually answer his question. He said, what are you seeking? And they said, they called him rabbis, the text tells us, which means teacher, and they wanted to know where he was staying. Now, to call Jesus rabbi showed that they regarded him highly. Rabbi literally means that they thought of him and regarded him as a master teacher of the law, an outstanding teacher or the great one. And by asking Jesus where he was staying, it didn't mean they just wanted to go see where his house was. It means we can't tell you what we're seeking in one short sentence. We want to go with you. We want to have a conversation with you. We have a lot of questions to ask you. We want to know about who you are. We want to find out for ourselves whether the proclamation of our former master, John the Baptist, was true. And what was Christ's response? His response to them was, come and see. In other words, Christ was saying, follow me. Follow me. Christ actually speaks the words follow me many times in the Gospels. We see him saying either follow me or come to me over 25 times. And here's just a few examples. Matthew 4.19, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew 9.9, 9, Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Matthew 10.38, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Mark 10, 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have. Give to the poor. 
and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. In John 21, 19, this he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. These are just a few examples, but the message is clear. We are to follow Christ. And that's not just, you know, walk behind Christ. That's to follow him, to do what he commands, to do what he says. But not all will follow him. Not all will. Only his sheep follow him. And those who are given to him by the Father are the sheep. It says in John 10, verses 27 to 29, it says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. We spoke a few weeks ago in the first part of John 1 that it's God who chooses us. It's, it's not the other way around. The Father, He chooses us and the Father gives us to Christ and He calls us to follow Him. And we see this truth abundantly clear as we continue to go through this book. And the Father, He has chosen His people. He's given them to the bridegroom, which is Jesus Christ. And nobody can change that. If you are, if you are in Christ, you are there permanently. It's not erasable. It's not, it can't be nullified. You are in Christ. You are always in Christ. Once in Christ, always in Christ. No man can take you out of the Father's hand, as the verse said. So Jesus, he tells John and Andrew to follow him to where he is staying. And he had granted their request. He would take them and he would answer their questions if they would follow him. And it says in verse 39 that they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. So the 10th hour in this would mean about 4 p.m. local time. So the day was already gone. They couldn't just follow him to where he was staying, get all their questions asked and leave. No, they were going to stay the night with him. They wanted all their questions. And as I was preparing for tonight's message, I was uh, reading a sermon from John MacArthur, and he was uh, preaching actually on this very text, and he says this, so they're going to stay with him, stay the day and stay the night. And I can imagine if I started a conversation with the Son of God, that sleep would be the last thing on my agenda. And this must have gone throughout the entire night. And how right is that? If you or I started a conversation with Jesus Christ directly and we didn't know before who he was and we just had found out that this was the one that we had, our people had been waiting on for centuries, yeah, I doubt we'd be doing much sleeping that night. The, the amount of questions flooding our minds would be enormous. And I said last week that we often take the person of Christ for granted. We often take him for granted. We'd, we don't think about who it is that we are following, his holiness, his supremacy, his lordship. And we often don't exalt him to the place he deserves. And often we don't even take time for him. I myself, I'm guilty of this. If you are like me, there are days when I don't feel like spending long periods of time in prayer. There's days when I don't feel like doing personal Bible study or kingdom work. You know, it's just, sometimes it's just not convenient. That's because we forget who it is that we serve. We forget who is the one that sits on the throne above, who allows us every breath that we have. The Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
But these two disciples, they made time. They left everything that they were doing and said, I want to stay with you. I want to find out about you. I want to know more about you. That's all they wanted. That's all they were seeking in verse 38. That was the true answer to Christ's question of what are you seeking? The answer was, we're seeking you, the Lamb of God. Well, that night and the next day, they must have gotten their answers because verses 40 and 41 tell us that Andrew went and found his brother Simon Peter and made the announcement that they had found the Messiah. It says this, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Now, I want to point out some things that we know about both Andrew and Peter. Uh, They obviously, as the text says, they are brothers. They are from Galilee, which uh, specifically at Bethsaida, where Philip, the other disciple we're going to meet in a minute, was also from. They were fishermen, so they would spend their days out on boats or in docks and ports or in the marketplace selling the fish that they had got. They would spend hours and hours and hours working at this. And as we'll see later, sometimes they would spend hours and hours and hours and catch nothing. They would be rugged. They would have been rough. It would have been dirty work. It was not glamorous. In other words, they were nobody. They were nobody. They weren't teachers. They weren't politicians. They weren't Romans, so they were already lower in society. They were nobodies. They weren't known throughout the lands. They were not important. And this is something to note, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus chose people who had no name for themselves. They were nobodies. They were the people you would least expect. And they came from Galilee, as I said before. Now, Galilee, it was at the northern end of Israel. It was a region where Jesus would carry out the bulk of his ministry, which makes sense since Jesus was from Galilee as well. The Galilean region would have included cities of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, Capernaum, where Peter would make his home, Bethsaida, where Peter, Andrew, and Philip all were from, Magdala, which is likely the town of Mary Magdalene. So we see all these people in the Bible growing up and living in the same region, but the region was far away from Jerusalem in Judea. It would have been close to 80 miles from Jerusalem, Bethsaida, as, as the crow flies, But in order to get there, you would either have to go up and around the Sea of Galilee and come back down or go down halfway and cross the Jordan River to get to Jerusalem. So these people weren't known to the people in Jerusalem. Jerusalem didn't care about these people. They were considered lower. If you were a real Jew, you would move to Judea where everything was happening. In fact, we see later in this book that the higher Pharisees would tell Nicodemus to study the scriptures regarding Christ. Because if they had searched the scriptures, he would see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Jewish leaders looked down on the region of Galilee. But Andrew runs and tells Peter that they found the Messiah. In verse 42, tells us that he brings Peter to Jesus and Jesus says this. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked up at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. I'm sure Peter was probably taken a little bit aback by this because Jesus knew who he was. You are Peter, you are the son of John, and you'll be called Cephas. Now, Peter had never met Jesus, as far as we know. He'd be like, how does he know this about me? But Jesus says Peter has been called Simon, but now we're going to call him Cephas. Now, Cephas is the Aramaic word for Peter. Peter is the Greek, and it means rock. Rock. 
But Peter would hardly be a rock during Christ's time on earth. In fact, while Christ was on earth, we would see Peter question Christ when Christ told him to throw his net back into the water to get fish. He doubted when he was walking on water towards Christ because of fear. He's rebuked by Christ and told to get behind me, Satan. When Peter couldn't handle the foretelling of Christ's death, he interfered with God's plan by cutting off the man's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was being arrested. And at the trial of Jesus, he denied Christ three different times. Peter was imperfect. He was afraid. He was arrogant. He was prideful. He was brash. He was foolhardy. But when Christ left this earth, and Peter was now left in charge of the disciples and the spokesman, he becomes that rock that Jesus said he would be. As we see him rise up in the book of Acts, proclaiming the name of Christ until he was killed for proclaiming that name. But Jesus was not done building his team. We've seen the first group, and in verse 43, it says, The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now, remember in John 1, 28, we're told that John the Baptist had been working in Bethany. This was further south than Galilee. This is where all of our events of the last few weeks we've been talking about this book have, have taken place there in Bethany at the Jordan River. But now they're going up to Galilee. And this, remember, is where Peter and Andrew were from as we saw in verse 44, specifically from Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida was a small fishing town. It's likely that Peter and Andrew already knew Philip. Uh, we live in a small town community here in Monroe County, uh, so we understand what it's like to know everybody and know everything about everybody. You know, Courtney and I, we just moved here a year and a half ago, and obviously she already knew a lot of people. She grew up here, but I didn't know anybody. But in the last year and a half, I can now go out places and I recognize people. I might not know them, but I know of them um, or I've heard of them. I recognize all sorts of people when I'm in town. That's just how it is when you live in a small place. And that's what this environment would have been. And so you learn who people are. It was no different in the first century. But Jesus says again, follow me to Philip. Now the text gives no indication that there is any hesitation from Philip. In fact, quite the opposite, because the next verse, it says that not only was Philip following Christ, he was going to go and find another disciple for Christ that day. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. So obviously, Jesus had said something here that ignites Philip to understanding who he is. And I want to make this point clear. Jesus Christ does not make it a mystery as to who he is. He doesn't make his true identity a mystery. He has revealed himself plainly to us so that none of us have any excuse for not knowing who he is. We have no excuse for denying Christ. Philip finds Nathanael and exclaims that we found the Messiah, the one the prophets wrote about and Moses wrote about. But it's interesting to note that he didn't actually say Messiah or he didn't say Christ. He said it's the one that they wrote about. Now, this is actually significant. It's not less than him saying that this is the Messiah. It's actually emphatically more because it's, it's easy to say, hey, this guy, I think he's the Messiah. No, he is saying 
not just that this is the Messiah. They say, no, this is the guy. This is the one that Moses wrote about. This is the one Isaiah wrote about, Jeremiah wrote about, Daniel wrote about, Malachi, all the prophets. This is who they were talking about. This is him. It's an emphatic way of saying that he is the Messiah. He fulfills all the prophecies we're looking for. This is the one written about long ago. But then he says something that causes Nathaniel to become confused. He says, the man is Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph the carpenter. Now, it seems obvious to me they must have, uh, that Joseph must have been known in the region because the question didn't come next from Nathaniel, who is Joseph the carpenter? It says, can anything good come from Nazareth? That's what it says in verse 46, and Philip says, come and see. Now, first I want to say that Nathanael was only mentioned here in John's gospel. This is the only one of the four gospels that actually mentions the disciple Nathanael. He's not mentioned by that name in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and this is most likely because he's actually the disciple Bartholomew. In Jewish culture, your last name would be Bar and then the name of your father. So, for example, Simon Peter... We know from earlier in this chapter that he was the son of John, so they would actually call him Simon Bar-John, or more specifically Bar-Jonas. So Bartholomew is the son of Ptolemy, and it is likely that Nathaniel would have been his first name, so his full name would have been Nathaniel Bartholomew. We also have evidence of this fact that in each of the first three Gospels, Bartholomew, when he is mentioned, he is always linked with Philip, just like Nathaniel is here in the book of John. But Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, Nathaniel, he was from Cana, which is another town in Galilee. Cana is the town we're going to look at next week, specifically as we get into chapter 2 and look at the sign miracles of Jesus and John. Um, but Cana was in the same region as Nazareth. And now it could be that there was some sort of rivalry between these two towns, that Nazareth didn't like Cana and Cana didn't like Nazareth. You know, Monroe County doesn't like Metcalf, apparently. I didn't even know any of that went on. Shows you how much I keep up with local sports. I only care about the Cincinnati Reds. But it's, uh, it's the offseason, so sports don't matter right now. Um, but it could be that there was some sort of rivalry. But what we see actually is that Jesus is going to say that Nathanael is a true Israelite. In other words, Nathanael would have known the scriptures. He would have been studied up on who the Messiah would be, where he would come from, and he would know that the Messiah was to come from Bethlehem in Judea, not Nazareth, not Galilee. In fact, Nazareth isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. Not only is it not mentioned in the Old Testament, it's not mentioned in any of the rabbinic writings, it's not uh, mentioned in any of the Judaism writings of the day, or any other ancient writings up until that time. Nazareth is just an insignificant place. It means nothing. Could anything good come from Nazareth? Of course, at this point, he must not have known that Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem, just as had been prophesied. He had not yet met Jesus. He had not had time to ask his questions of Jesus like the others had. He was strictly going on what Philip had told him, just saying, okay, Philip has said this is the Messiah, but this isn't making any sense. 
But Philip, he just dismissed Nathaniel's question. Can anything good come from Nazareth? He, he dismisses it and he just says, come and see. Come and see. You know, it's easy when we are giving the gospel. When someone questions what we're saying or dismisses it or scoffs at it, it's easy just to give up and let it discourage us. But we should keep evangelizing. We should be like Philip and say, why don't you just come and see for yourself? Why don't you come and see who this Jesus is? Now, obviously, we can't take him directly to Christ like Philip had the privilege of doing. But we can show them who he is. We can show him what he has done, what his purpose is. We can show him why he has a need for his Savior and what that Savior did for us. You know, we can get into debates about theology. We can get into debates about creation. We can get into debates about politics and all, all these things. And there's a place and time for each of those things. But more importantly, each person needs to know and meet and experience the saving grace of Jesus Christ for themselves. That needs to be the main focus because they need to find out who he is. Otherwise, the rest is just clanging symbols, as Paul says. The rest doesn't mean anything. It's just going to fall on deaf ears. I mean, if they don't believe in Christ in the first place, why do they care what Christ taught? They won't. We need to let them experience Christ for who he is. And so Nathaniel, he decides that he's going to give Philip the benefit of the doubt, and he's going to go see this, this Jesus that Philip is so excited about. And it says this in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Jesus shows us something with Nathanael that he also showed us with Peter back in verse 42, and that's his, his omniscient knowledge of them. He is God. He knows everything. And he knew these Men, despite the fact that they did not know him, he created them. He knows them intimately. And he declares Nathaniel to be an Israelite without deceit. This literally means an Israelite without guile. A Hebrew counterpart for this word is the same word used to describe how Jacob tricked his father Isaac into giving him his brother Esau's blessing uh, instead of Esau. It is a cunning trickery. It's deceptive, crafty, it's underhanded, and this had become the reputation of the Jews throughout history, particularly of the Jewish religious leaders at this point. We saw earlier in chapter 1 of John, the Pharisees coming to question John the Baptist, and they remember they were looking to keep power. We will see this throughout the book of, the, uh, book of John, that they are going to find, try and find ways to trip up Jesus. I think specifically of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, they ask him, this woman's been caught in adultery, we should now stone her. But each time Jesus won't be fooled, we'll see when we get to that chapter that he says, okay, let he who is without sin cast that first stone. But they'll try to, try to trip and fool and trick and deflect and distract and deceive. But Jesus said that none of this was found in Nathanael. He's a true Israelite. In other words, he was a true believer. He truly was awaiting and accepting and longing for the Messiah. He was a true son of the promise. Of course, this catches Nathaniel off guard. 
just like it caught Peter off guard. In verse 48, it says, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. How do you know me? Remember, at this point, Nathanael, he's not yet sure of the identity of Christ other than what Philip has said. He's come to ask questions. He's come to seek if this is true. Now, Jesus has made a declaration about Nathanael, and Nathanael wants to know, how can he know this? How could he possibly know anything about me? And Jesus says to him, I saw you under that fig tree before Philip ever called you. Now, we don't know what happened under that fig tree. I wish we did because I'm sure it was fascinating. But what we do know is that Jesus was not physically there with him under that fig tree because he was with Philip somewhere else. Yet, Jesus saw him under that fig tree, supernaturally. He's God. Again, John is showing us the divine nature of Christ. He knows everything. He sees everything. He hears everything. But whatever happened under that tree, the fact that Jesus told Nathanael that he saw him there struck something within Nathanael. It says in verse 49, Nathanael answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So whatever happened under that tree, Nathanael's immediate response to the knowledge that Christ, to this knowledge was that Christ was the Son of God and the King of Israel. It was enough to push Nathanael into recognition that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And his response wasn't a casual response. It wasn't just saying, okay, you are the Christ. You are the King of the Jews. No, it was declarative. It was authoritative. You are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. You are the King of Israel. And as we've seen all throughout John chapter 1, you are God. Remember the Gospel of John was written so that we might believe Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And Nathaniel, he was declaring this statement to its fullest extent. You are God. You are the Messiah. And this is how Jesus chose to respond to him in verses 50 and 51. It says, Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God descending, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, Jesus, he was not asking a question to Nathaniel because he didn't know an answer. He has already displayed his omniscience. What he is saying here is like, you believe that I am the Messiah because of this? Because I saw you under the fig tree? Just wait. You will see greater things. And of course, we know that Nathaniel and the other disciples did see greater things. In the very next chapter alone, which we'll look at next week, we see Jesus perform the first of the sign miracles by turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And remember, that's Nathaniel's hometown. They would see much greater works than these. This statement, it's ushering in a series of what we're going to go into over the next few chapters of what's called the sign miracles in John. Miracles that Jesus will perform to show exactly who he is and what power he has and what authority he has. It's going to be miracles, like I said, water turned into wine, the feeding of 5,000 people from just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. 
We will see healings of lame men, healings of blind men. We'll see a man raised back from the dead. And of course, we'll see Christ's own resurrection. The fact that Jesus knew everything about Nathaniel, the fact that Jesus knows everything about you and me is just scratching the surface. It's not to discount that fact that he knows everything. I mean, obviously that is wonderful and majestic and powerful, but it doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what he is able to do and what he does do. Greater things will be done for them, and greater things will be done for you and me through the name of Jesus Christ. In the final verse of chapter 1, we see Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man. He refers to himself this way 13 different times in John's Gospel. It's actually his preferred way in John's Gospel of referring to himself. It has two purposes. The first purpose is that it shows his humanity. We have been very focused as we've gone through the first chapter of John on the deity of Christ, but we must not forget the humanity of Christ. He is truly God and truly man. The Word became flesh. But the second purpose that this serves is to announce exactly who he is. We need to look back in the writings of the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 and starting in verse 13 it says this, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people all nation and all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man is the title that the Messiah would hold according to Daniel. He was God. He was the eternal one, and his kingdom will not pass away. From the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus did not hide who he was. Right here on, on the third day, I am the Son of Man. I am the one that Daniel prophesied about. I am God. And there are a few things that we need to make note that I want us to take away from tonight. The first is this, that Jesus calls those to himself that he wishes to save. We saw him call the disciples to follow him, and we must make sure that we answer that call. As sinners, when the Savior comes calling and says, follow me, we answer that call. We leave everything and follow him and serve him for his purposes for our lives. The second is this. Jesus is the great teacher who has all knowledge and truth. He knows everything about us. He knows everything about the world, everything that goes on in the world. Nothing surprises him. Nothing takes him by surprise. He knows what's going on over in the Middle East. He knows what's going on here at home with politics. He knows what's going on with our denomination. He knows what's going on with our church. He knows what's going on in our homes and our community. There are no surprises, but this should give us great comfort because this means he has a plan for it all because we do believe God is sovereign over everything. And third and finally is Jesus is the great King of kings. He will rule eternally, and you want to make sure that you are in his favor for that rule. Are you a part of his kingdom? Have you answered that call? You know, 
it's easy for us to assume that everyone in this room is saved. But statistically, did you know at least two of us are not? If statistics are true? Are you in that kingdom? Have you answered that call? As we finish up this first chapter, I want to make sure that we have an understanding of who Jesus is and where we're going. We've seen Jesus as the word becoming flesh to dwell among his people. We have seen that he is the perfect lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. And he calls to those that he wants to be his disciples. And if you are hearing that call, make sure that you answer it because the Savior is waiting and the Savior is calling. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this wonderful chapter that we've been able to study the last few weeks, Lord, and see the majesty of your deity in the way that you humbled yourself to come down to live among us, that we could be your people. Let us never forget who you are and the place that you deserve in our lives. Let us recognize what it means to follow you. And let us boldly proclaim your name throughout the nations. Give us the strength and courage to be that bold voice proclaiming, make way the path of the Lord. We thank you and we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.